Awesome. Amen. Hey, welcome to Harvest. My name is Trey. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. Um, And like Danny just said, we have been in a collection of talks called Prisons to Playgrounds. Um, And before we get into that, there is one thing I do want to mention. I think it's important that I mention it. Um, You know, stewardship is something um, that I believe that the church has been called to. And um, whether it be stewarding a team, a, uh, a body of individuals, or a facility, a building, um, stewardship is something I do believe that our, the church is called to. And um, stewarding something with excellence is something I feel like we're called to. And what is excellence? Excellence is doing the best you can with what you have. Um, and excellence and stewarding with excellence, it inspires others and it honors God. And if you've noticed in our facility, this is the place we are meeting at the Harmony Middle School. We have been called to steward it with excellence. And with that being said, last week I made the announcement, and I just want to reiterate it, um, looking forward to next week, September 11th, um, that we are going, we are trying to raise money. If you've noticed, it's dark in the room. Um, and one thing we are trying to do is raise money so that way we can buy some lighting that we think will be the permanent solution for our time stewarding this middle school building. Um, and that lighting cost will cost $3,500 to do. We don't just have $3,500 to just go and do whatever. So what we're asking you guys to do is to help us steward this building w- well, create a better experience for people um, as they walk in and sit in these seats. And what we're asking is that each and every single family just bring $100 next week. And if every single family does that, we will be able to buy the lights and put them up and we'll have a big celebratory moment but we think that will be the permanent solution to our lighting issue that we've experienced since day one at this school and so that's just us stewarding this building well honoring God with stewarding this building and inspiring others and doing things um, with excellence so with all that being said next week that is the day that we're asking each and every single family you can do it online or you can do it um, in the giving box in the back Um, just a hundred dollars per family and we believe that will solve our lighting issue with all of that being said, we don't do make that announcement every single week. So if you're a first-time guest, all they do is talk about money. No, we don't, promise. Um, continuing on, we're, we're in a series right now called Prisons to Playgrounds. And the thought behind this series, just to catch you up to speed, if you're a first-time guest to our church or first time in a while, um, when you think about a playground and you think about a prison, um, there's not much of a difference. You're like, yes, there is. Think about it. Prison has walls, it has fences, it has gates, and it has supervision. A playground has walls, it has gates, it has fences, and it has supervision. One is meant to destroy joy and to be a punishment. The other is meant to enhance joy and be a time of fun. And there are a lot of times in our lives where we view things as prisons that God has called us to view them as a playground. Like, for example, maybe you think that your job is a prison. The thing you go to and clock in and out of, it is the place that robs you of all joy. But what if, in fact, that work was not meant and created to be a chore, but something to be enjoyed? And, in fact, your office space is your mission field, so it's not a prison, it's a playground. It's a place where you can have joy. It's a place where you can build community. It's a place that you could reach people for the gospel. What if you view your marriage as a prison, right? And it's actually something that's meant to be enjoyed, not something you're stuck in. And there's a thousand different illustrations I can go to, but that is kind of the thought process behind this series. And the reason we're in, we call it this is because in the book of Philippians, um, the author of this book, the, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter 
from prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And the whole theme of this book is joy. So he literally turned his prison into a playground and wrote a letter to, about joy to a church in Philippi. And the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about a couple of different things. You can catch that on our podcast. But this week, I want to talk about something that I really feel like is timely for where we are as a church locally and where we are as a church just in general in our country. I want to take you back to a date, uh, May 26, 2019. It is the day that me and my wife got married. Um, and uh, arguably the hottest day to ever exist on this planet. Um, and my wife is from Massachusetts, and so she always wanted an outdoor wedding. Um, and so the gasp, you, all, you already see it coming. We did an outdoor wedding May 26 in Florida, um, and it was so hot that people were sweating through their, their sports coats. It was, it, was, it was pretty hot that day. But we did it. It was great. But one thing that always struck me funny growing up was, like, why all my friends who were girls always fantasized about weddings. Like, maybe you're in here, and from the age of five, you knew what your wedding was going to look like. Like, you knew what you wanted. You knew, like, the kind of cake you wanted. You knew the dress you wanted. You knew all of it, and you had fantasized about it, right? You knew exactly what you wanted. Let me tell you a little bit of secret. Guys weren't doing that, <laughs> I was in the backyard eating ants for protein. Like, that's what I was doing at, at that age. Um, and it's just funny. And so I get to the day of the wedding, and, you know, I grew up in a Christian household, and we held two very traditional views about marriage in our house. And so marriage is the day that everything pleasurable becomes free. Like, you can do it freely, right? So, that, like, as a guy, that's what I'm thinking about. Like, I don't care about the wedding day. Let's get to the wedding night. Trey, too much. Oh, calm down. All right? This ring means I can talk about it, okay? So I, I was looking forward to the night, I'm ready for the night, like ready, wedding night, let's get to it. And um, I, uh, one of my friends pulled me aside and he was like, hey, listen, enjoy the day. Because today, you're going to, it's going to be so much stuff you're doing. You're, you're going to show up with your groomsmen early in the morning. You're going to show up at the groomsmen house. You're going to have a, like breakfast. You're going to do all this stuff. And next thing you know, it's time to get ready. And then next thing you know, you know your dad's fixing your tie. Um, and the next thing you know, you're walking down the aisle ready to receive your bride. And just a little shout out, I walked down the aisle to Lose Yourself by Eminem, most epic entrance of all time. I walked down the aisle, I, st I stood there, and my dad officiated our wedding. And um, next thing you know, the doors open up, uh, you know, <laughs> Eminem compared to like a serious violin orchestra as Lauren walked down. Um, she started to walk down. Um, and we barely got to eat. We didn't get to say hey to everybody. We had to go take pictures, and we had to cut the cake, and then we had to do the, the toss, and then we had to do a dance, and then we had to do all this stuff, and next thing you know, in the blink of an eye, the day was over. And the advice that the person gave to me at the beginning of the day is, I want you to take mental breaks throughout the day where you just stop and remove yourself from the moment and just look at all the people that have come to support you all the people that have come to celebrate the two families coming together. I want you to remove yourself from the moment and look at your wife every now and then. And not just as a people who are just thanking people, but as just, like, that's your wife. And I want you to pause. And I want you, like, and he just gave me these moments. And I took these little breaks throughout the day where, and I noticed 
the the thing I wasn't the thing I was looking forward to the most. Yes, I was still looking forward to. Obviously, I'm a dude, okay. But like that, I started to enjoy the day. I started to just look at my wife and be like, "That's my wife." I started to look at my family and be like, and you know, just memories of you know me being a little kid and the sacrifices they made of me to get to this moment where I'm going to leave and cleave and start my own family. And I, it, it helped me enjoy something that often gets overlooked. Because if I was only looking forward to one thing and I had to get to that one thing, I would have missed something, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really impatient. And so when it comes to movies or TV shows, if I'm on episode three, in a season of a TV show, and there's 20 episodes in the season, and there's a tension point, I'm the type of person who will Google how the season ends. <gasps> You're the worst. Shut up. All right. I, I, I Google how the season ends. If I'm in a movie, and I know the movie's four hours long, and I'm like an hour through, and I'm like, I don't have the patience to sit through this, I Google how the movie ends. I don't tell everybody, but I Google how it ends. I Google how the like, and so I, I want to know the outcome because there is this tension, there is this worry moment where I'm like, I've got to know how this will work out. I've got to know how this ends. And we do this a lot in our lives. We obsess over the outcome. We obsess over the thing that is constantly in front of us. And when we do that, yes, the outcome matters, but when we do that, we miss something. When we do this, we miss something important. But why do we do this? Is it because the knowledge of how this plays out brings us peace? The knowledge that this will work out gives us joy. Or if this is going to end in total disaster, I need to know ahead of time to prepare. But the unknown, man, that drives us crazy. The unknown tends to rob us of peace and joy. The unknown is a thief if we're not too careful. So we have to know the outcome. But when we have to know the outcome, we often miss the now. And when we miss the now, we are robbed of the thing that God designed to bring us joy. And Which leads me to my bottom line, my big thought for this morning. If you haven't guessed it already, it's this. Don't miss the joy of the journey because of your obsession with the outcome. Don't miss the joy of the journey because of your obsession with the outcome. Your life is a story. Your life is a journey. From your first breath until your last, it is a story. It is a journey. And the reason we get, so, um, we get so captivated by books, by TV shows, by movies, by these narratives is not because we, we, for example, it's not because in episode one of Lord of the Rings, like, I'm, yes, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. Who cares? It's not because in episode one of the Lord of the Rings, there's a ring we have to destroy. Five minutes later, we drop it in the pit, you know, movie's over, great five-minute short film. Like, there, we are in ca- like captivated by this because of the journey. We love when characters that have nothing to do with our life, we get to observe it, go on this crazy journey, and we find joy in their journey. But when it comes to our life, we obsess over the outcome and we despise the journey. The journey makes us anxious because there is an unknown outcome in our journey. And so we obsess over the outcome. 
In the book of Philippians, which is where we're going to be, Philippians chapter 2, the church in Philippi, the, the town is named Philippi, hence the name Philippians. Um, in the church of Philippi, the church is anxious. The church is worried. Why are they worried? Why are they anxious? Here's why. Because they are, they are concerned that because Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel, that maybe all Christians in Rome will be arrested for believing and associating with Jesus. They are worried, like, okay, because Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel, does that mean that we were going to get arrested for preaching the gospel or believing the gospel or even attending church? Like, do, do I need to not bring my kids to church out of fear that the Roman government will come and arrest our family? Like, that was a very real fear for this group, for this, for this church. And there were a lot of unknowns, and unknowns, again, lead to anxious and worried individuals. And when the unknown starts to happen, and maybe you are beginning to understand where I'm coming from and paint the picture, maybe because you experience this, when there is unknowns, a lot of time we don't live by faith, we live by instinct. We live by emotions and we live by feelings. It's a fight or flight instinct that we, that we, that we take whenever there is an unknown. And I, and I love you enough to tell you this hard truth. Nowhere in God's word does it cater to your feelings. That nowhere in the Gospels or at all in God's word does it say, I know life is difficult right now. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to stop attending church. I want you to just take time. Get away. Go do whatever you want to do. And then whenever you feel rested, whenever you feel good, then, then find another local church. Then start following me and obeying me again. That nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in God's Word does it say, hey, when your bank account reaches X amount of dollars, then be generous. It says, be generous with what you have. Nowhere in God's Word does it say, I know life is less than ideal right now. I know there is sickness in your family. I know there's that. So just take a break from following my Word. Kind of just live by your own emotion. Cope how you want to cope. And then whenever you feel like you've dealt with what you need to deal with, then come on back to me. That's okay. Philippians, and honestly, all of Jesus' teachings is, I know life is less than ideal right now, follow me. Because life's, life will always be unideal to us who follow Jesus. Why? Because this isn't heaven. And as we follow Jesus, our souls long for perfection. Our souls long for heaven. Our souls long to be with Jesus. And this world will never do anything but disappoint. But there is a journey from us following Jesus to us, us, us actually reaching Jesus. And that is our story of following Jesus. And we have been called and God encourages us and says it is possible for you to find joy in the journey. You can have joy in this journey of following Jesus. Paul, you don't get it. You don't understand. Life was ideal for you. You're writing this letter from, wait. You're writing this letter from prison, and you're telling me to find joy in the journey. God is telling us to find joy in the journey. So how do we enjoy the journey? What does this journey look like? I think there are a couple of truths that we can believe and put into practice to help us find joy in the journey this morning of following Jesus. Thought number one, um, it says, I, I want to say, uh, what God gives to you, he wants to work out of you so that way he can do something through you. In the book of Philippians, I want to read this really quickly. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We're going, to move, we're going to read more than this, but I want to start here. It says this. Therefore, right? 
Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what? What's the therefore? Therefore. So it's like a, compi- like a compilement. It's like Legos. Like we started with this truth, that God is good, that the gospel is true. Week one, pursue Jesus, pursue joy. Therefore, our ultimate hope is greater than our immediate fear. That was week two. And then therefore, and we added another truth last week, and now another. So therefore, if the gospel is real, and our hope is in him, and we will not be shaken, therefore, here's where we land this week. Verse, chapter, or verse 12, it says this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, as, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul was not here with this church. He helped start this church in Acts 16. You can read about it there. But he he starts this church, but he's not there with this church. And so he's encouraging them. I'm not there, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't follow Jesus. You know, there, in, in your journey, and here's what Paul is saying, there has to become a point where this journey becomes personal, where you have to stop, like have somebody hold your hand through this thing called Christianity, and you start to take your own steps. You start to put things into practice, and you develop disciplines so that way at the end of the day, you can say, I am personally following Jesus. Yes, I belong to a greater corporate body of worship called the local church, but I am personally following him and I don't need somebody to baby talk me or to hold my hand I have grown up in my faith and that's what Paul is saying he goes hey listen hey don't quit don't stop just because I'm not there doesn't mean you shouldn't obey right it's like whenever like you turn your back and your kid goes and does something he's not supposed to and you turn around and they stop they're like I didn't think you would look at me that's what Paul is saying he's like just because I'm not there doesn't mean that Jesus isn't present and that you shouldn't be obedient He's like, come on, like, let's do this, right? So I, I love health, and I love fitness, and I had a personal trainer back in Jacksonville, and um, I, I was talking to him, and, and he would often be my accountability partner, and we would meet up, like, once a week, and he would ask me how I was eating and what I was doing and all this stuff, and there were moments where I had a decision. Either I straight up lied to him that I had McDonald's three times this week, or I was going to be honest with him, and he could actually, like, help me, and so I chose the honesty route, and he looked at me. He goes, dude, there's going to have to come a day where you want this. I, I, I can't keep saying, like, and I will do this until one of us dies of telling you stop eating McDonald's. He goes, I will do that if that's what you're paying me for. But there has to come a point if you see the results you're paying for that you have to want it like I want it for you. And here we have Paul and and, and God speaking through Paul and he is saying, there's going to have to come a point where your current habits have to change to reach a different outcome. It's going to have to come a point where if you want to enjoy the journey, you're going to have to change some perspectives and some practices in your personal life. That you're going to have to actually want this. That you're going to desire this. And so Paul is saying, like, do you want this? And I'm, I'm encouraging you, God wants this for you. More importantly than me wanting it for you, standing up here once a week and giving a 40-minute message, God every single day wants this for you. 
He wants you to enjoy the journey. Well, if you were reading the passage along with me, you saw this phrase, work out your salvation. And if, and if, if you don't know scripture, sometimes when you read things blindly, you're like, what, is, what does that mean? There's a difference between working for salvation and uh, working out salvation. Working for salvation is religion. It's this thought process of I'm not going to church or I'm not going to do anything until I get my life right. Right? It's the old adage that I don't know if anybody actually says anymore, but a lot of preachers say, somebody told me the other day that if I were to step into your church, it would burst into flames. <laughs> Nobody talks like that anymore. But like, that's the old adage of um, I, like, I'm not going to go to church because I'm, I'm a sinner. And I'm like, hey, if you join us, you would join all of the sinners. <laughs> Right? Like, it'd be like, I, it, it, I just don't understand that. And so, working out salvation is different than working for salvation because here's salvation. Like Danny described earlier, it is us being lost and unaware of our lostness. Christ steps down and says, you're lost and now you're found I'm going to die a death that you should have died, and I'm going to live a perfect life that you could never live. I'm going to fulfill every single law in the Old Testament that requires, that is the standard of perfection. I understand God cannot be associated with anything unperfect. So God, so Jesus came down from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and now he says that perfect life I lived that was the requirements and standard for heaven, if you have faith in me and believe in me, that standard, that 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 that, that, that record is now placed on your soul. And so now we don't need to be perfect. We just need to be followers of Jesus. That's it. That is salvation. And that is us having, we were once walking towards a destination and a journey towards eternal death in a place called hell. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, your eternal destination has changed. And now you are living a life full of joy on a journey to eternal, um, et- eternal uh, a relation and presence with God. So that's why we can have joy in the journey, because we know the destination. And I'm not worried about the outcome, because I know the ultimate outcome is that I spend and I get Jesus. That's why Paul says in the previous chapter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, great, I'm going to preach Jesus. If I die, great, I'm with Jesus. I can't lose. But if I'm not following Jesus, I don't know if I can have joy in the journey, because I don't know what the outcome is, and I don't know, and this is ultimate rather than just temporary. But working out salvation, what Paul is talking about, this is to believers. And this is what he's saying. Work out your salvation. Here's what it means. When you work out in the gym, when you work out at all, what you're doing is you are building muscle mass. You are building something. You are becoming more fruitful in your physique. And so what Paul is saying with your salvation, you are following Jesus. Okay, be obedient. That's old school. I want the new religion that's just about feelings. I want the new religion that's just about songs. Like, I want that religion. Well, I'm here to tell you that Christianity without obedience isn't really Christianity. You need to be following and obeying Jesus, submitting to something greater. And so what Paul is saying is work out your salvation, meaning this, don't be an obese Christian. You can be a Christian and straight up disobedient and you will still enter into the kingdom, but you will be spiritually fat on your way there. 
I want us to be as healthy as possible, and I want God, more importantly, wants you to be as healthy as possible and saying, live out your Christianity, live out your faith, live out this salvation that I have so graciously give you. Work out your faith, walk in obedience. And so I, here's, here's the joy part of it. We don't work for salvation, we just work out of salvation. That, that should enough bring us joy. That the healthiest version of ourselves is walking in obedience to Jesus, not living out of instinct or emotion. I find rejoicing in that because I don't have to figure life out. God already has it figured out, and I just need to walk in obedience. Rejoice that God put his spirit in you, and now you are an heir. So what God gives to you, what does God give to you? He gives you salvation. How does he give you salvation? In Romans 8, it talks about this. The Holy Spirit is the thing that seals you as a child of God. So the Holy Spirit adopts you. And this is a whole different sermon series that I could go into. But for better or for worse, really short, the Holy Spirit seals you. So the Holy Spirit adopts you. And the Holy Spirit comes upon your soul when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved, like Paul also talks about. The Holy Spirit comes and it seals you and it adopts you. You are now a child, a son or a daughter of the Most High King. And not only does he adopt you and that sealed you, but that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives within you. So that spirit isn't just an adopting spirit, it's an empowering spirit. And so that thing that God puts in you, he wants to work out of you to where that same spirit that is within you is drawing you to Jesus. So when you feel conviction, don't feel bad. In fact, embrace conviction because conviction helps us change direction. All conviction is, is whenever we say, I'm going to live by emotion rather than faith, it's the Holy Spirit going, hey, that's not what Jesus would look like. Let's go this way. That's all conviction is. It's the Holy Spirit going, hey, this is not how Jesus would talk. This isn't how he would act. This isn't how he would believe. Let's walk this way because this is how Jesus would go. This is how you have joy in the journey. And so when we stop fighting this, we're like, I just feel a constant tension in my spirit. Why are you obeying Jesus? No. If you stop fighting and just say, okay, I'm following you, spirit, and it comes to this moment, we're like, all right, I, I can do this. I'm walking in obedience. That's what God is starting. He's like, that's what works out of you. So what God put in you, he wants to work out of you so that what? So he can do something through you. And I want, that's something to rejoice in. That rejoice that God is working in me to produce something through me. That God is empowering this partnership. Because that's what this relationship with God is. It's not God partnering on your journey. It's not God partnering on your dreams. It's not God partnering in your desires. It is us partnering with God on the greatest and biggest mission to ever exist in humanity, and that is to redeem the lost and to help the saved become more like Jesus through sanctification. So the mission of God is salvation and sanctification until ultimate glorification. That is the mission of God. That is the heart of God. He is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to relationship with him. Once you're in a relationship with him, he gives us this book to help us become more like him, understand him, and know him until, day, until the day we're with him and we are to, all things are totally made new. And our role whenever we accept Jesus is not, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. God, come with me and make everything great. When I choose to follow Jesus, it's okay. God, what is your mission? There are a hundred lost friends around me. This is your mission. How are you going to reach them? Oh, me? Great. I will do it. That is what God does in us. 
to work out of us so that he can do something through us, which is to reach the lost, help sanctify the saved until the day we are ultimately glorified in him. That is what, how we enjoy the journey. People who have joy in the journey often don't, aren't confused with their purpose. And if you are confused with your purpose, I just explained it to you. You have a purpose, and it's to partner with God on his mission, not asking God to help you accomplish yours. My second thought is this, that being obedient will result in you being different, and that's okay. So how do we find joy in the journey? Number one, just embrace what God's doing in you and accept what he wants to do through you. And when you step out in obedience, you're going to be different. And that's okay. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, very quickly, says this. Do everything, some things, everything without grumbling or arguing. No, that's, I, I, sorry, I read that incorrectly. Do something, no, sorry, everything without grumbling or arguing. I think I read that wrong again. No, I did, I read it right. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. The world complains a lot. The world is polarized majorly. The world is separated down the middle. And not just with faith and atheism, not just with faith and agnostic, it's, it's politically, it's racially, it's ethnically, it's, it's you know, generational wealth, it's, it's, it's divided, it's economically divided. Like it, there's a ton of things that divide generations, and each side complain about the other. But what if a group of individuals called Jesus followers stopped complaining and stopped grumbling? And not just about that, but how about grumbling when it comes to obeying God's word. Showed up again, and the pastor called me out, and he didn't technically call me out, but I knew he was calling me out. Uh, who does he think he is? Who does God think he is to tell me what to do? God is not a God to negotiate with. There is no God. I, I, I'll half obey you if you half bless me. There is no negotiation with God. God, I, 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 God, if everything in this book is real, then my life has to dra drastically change, and I don't know if I want that my life to drastically change. Just, like, what if, what if we follow Jesus just with joy on the journey, and we were okay with being different than the rest of the world? And here's the illustration that Paul gives when we read children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. If you notice, it's in quotations, and it's a quote from Deuteronomy. And it's Moses' last spiel to the nation of Israel. And here's what he's saying. It's, it's this whole lament. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He goes, when we were in the wilderness, which we currently still are, all you did was bicker and complain. God brought millions of us out of Egypt where we were slaved, 
where we were punished, where they gave us unreasonable quotas to meet, and they knew we couldn't meet them. And even if we did meet them, they would punish us anyways to remind us who was the superior nation. God brought you out of that. God brought you out of this dictatorship in Egypt where they, lest I remind you, right before God brought you out of there, Pharaoh gave the order to kill any single newborn baby under the age of two. To slaughter them in the streets. And here we are in the wilderness and you're saying, wow, life was so much better in Egypt. When every single morning, supernaturally, birds are all over the ground so that way we can go and collect them and eat them for our family. Where this guy with a staff just walked up to a rock, tapped it, and flowing water came out of it. And we're like, oh, life was so much better in Egypt. And what, what, what Paul is saying, and he's quoting Moses, he's like, you have no idea what you've been brought out of. And because you started to follow Jesus, life looks different, and you're going to complain? Life is better, the best and ultimate and maximum human experience that you could ever experience on this planet is not found in living out of the flesh, but it's found in following Jesus. That is where ultimate joy comes from. That's where we find joy in the journey. And if you start to look different, that's okay. You know what I don't want in my life and I don't want in your life is if you have been friends with somebody for years and somebody were to bring up, you know they go to harvest. Oh, really? They're a Christian. I never knew. I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for your life. God has called us to be different. And what does Paul say here? Then you will be like stars amongst the sky. And I'm here to tell you that every single congregation can be a constellation for the kingdom of God. That you have the capacity to be lights in a very dark world. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, that's what Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time, called us to. He said, I want you to be the salt and light to a very dark world. What does salt do? Salt in this day and age was the preservative to the good thing, the preservative to the meat, the preservative to the food. And so what God is saying, you need to be my preservation, the preservation of the embodiment of Jesus on this earth. So when people say, where is the good thing on this planet? They can point to the church. And light stands out. So not only are we preserving, but we're also standing out because we embody Jesus. How do we embody Jesus? Through obedience. That is what we have been called to do. And it is a joy to follow Jesus. And if you're worried about the unknown, about how dark the world is getting, here's the thing you should be encouraged about. The darker the world gets, the brighter the church shines. That there's a difference between light and dark. And our light doesn't expose to condemn. It reveals to point to better. The word is our distinct way of walking in faith and in light. The word is our distinct way in walking in faith. And if you don't notice a difference in your life after a year of following Jesus, I'm here to tell you, you may not be as obedient and submissive humbly as you think you are. And last and final thought. How do we find joy in the journey? Number one, we partner with God in his mission, that he put something in you that we don't have to work for, and he wants to work it out of you so that way he can do something through you. And number two, when you start to do that, you will look different, and that's okay. And I, to be honest, I almost skipped this part of our passage. 
because I didn't think it really went, but at the same time, I think it does go with our passage and the overall theme of this message. And I'm not, I don't have time to read it all this morning, but in your own time, I want you to read verses 19 through 30, but here's the gist of it. I want you to speak highly of the next generation. Speak of the next generation highly. Point them to Jesus faithfully and watch them lead fearlessly and passionately. So that way at the end of your journey, there is a legacy where you can point back and be like, the church is in good hands. The gospel is still being communicated. How often are we to condemn the next generation because they do things differently than we do? They dress differently than we do. Because they shop at, I don't know, PacSun, and y'all still shop at Buckle. Like, I don't know. Like, (laughs) speak of the next generation highly. And this whole passage is, in 19 through 30, is Paul saying, I'm sending a guy named Timothy to you. Yes, he's in his early 20s. Yes, he's not. No, he's not me. Yes, he's younger than most of your church leaders. Why am I sending Timothy to you? To lead the church. Because he's qualified. Because I trust him. Because he's heard of your stories and he loves you. And he's inspired by you. And he's coming to make a difference. We need the next generation. We do not need to abandon them or to condemn them or talk bad about them. We need to reach them and empower them and to speak into them and to disciple them. We need, empower, we need to empower young people. Young people, you need to find someone older than you and commit to learning from them. The church without young people will die, and the church without old people will be without discipleship, and we need both. I'm going to end with this story. There's a story in the Old Testament of a guy named Moses, and like I talked about earlier, he helped lead the people out of Egypt, and there's this guy under Moses' leadership named Joshua. There's a whole book of the Bible written about him. Moses had a point in his journey where they didn't have to wander the wilderness for 40 years. I don't know if you knew that. They didn't have to do that. It was a punishment of a decision, and here was the decision. God brought them out of Egypt and didn't bring them out to leave them out. He brought them out for something greater. And when God brought the, uh, the Israelites out under the leadership of Moses, they came to the promised land. And this promised land was swarmed with giants. It was swarmed with cities and fortresses. And, the, and Moses sent out spies, and he sent out 12 spies, and they all came back, and 10 spies says, we can't do this. I don't know why God brought us here in the first place. We will lose, Moses, if we go into this place and fight this battle. And two of them, one of them's name was Joshua, said, God promised us this. God promised us this this victory. God promised us this place. We need to go in there. I don't care if we look like we're inadequate. There is someone who is way more qualified, powerful, and present amongst us than us. And he's the one that created it and promised it. So I think we should go in there. And Moses, arguably his greatest mistake in leadership, said, we're not going in. And God saw his lack of faith and said, fine, then you will be without this promised land for 40 years. You will die in the wilderness, Moses, and you will not see the promised land. When Moses dies, Joshua speaks very highly of him. 
But Joshua takes leadership of Israel, of the Israelite people. And the very first thing he does is he gets to the river that separates them and the land that was promised for them. And he goes, God, you got to make a way. Let me know that this is where we're supposed to be. And God parts the water supernaturally. And Joshua leads the Israelites through the waters again. And they come upon this place called Jericho, this mighty fortress in this land. And they're like, how are we going to fight this? And Joshua goes, I don't know. Let me, go, let me go ask God. And God says, hey, Joshua, I've given you Jericho. Now here's what I want you to do. So there is a promise of victory before, before, an order, before the orders are given. And I want, I want to tell you this. In your life, you are leading somebody. Somebody is watching you. If you're a parent in here, you're leading your children. Well, I don't ever really talk about spiritual things with my children. You're leading them with how you behave. You're leading them, you're leading them at dinner conversations. You're leading them with how you talk to your spouse. You are leading them. And I don't want to get to the point in my life where my kid looks at me and goes, Dad, you could have stepped into all of this. You could have had, you could have stepped into this, you could have stepped into that. I want to look back on my life and say, I painted a picture of a great big God. You know, it took a step of faith for me and my family to move to this city and this community. We left Jacksonville. Um, We made the decision to move here after we found out my wife was pregnant. So, my wife is pregnant. You don't leave Jacksonville with my family. Like, it's where our support system is. But we felt called to this place. And I didn't want my son to hear about a great big God I preached about, but a great big God I was too, un- I was too lacking of faith to follow. So we made the decision, we're going to paint the picture. We're going to set the blueprint that when God calls you to something, there is no negotiation, there is no arguing, there is no grumbling. It is joyfully yes. And I want to tell you this, that God has promised you joy on this journey of life. He has promised you, promised it to you. It is not a suggestion. It is not a possibility. It is a promise to you that on this journey of life, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how how troublesome it gets, no matter how unknown it gets, and there's a lot of unknowns in this world. I don't know what this country will look like when my son is all grown and he has kids. I don't. I don't know what the economic state of our world will be in. I don't know if there's going to be war. I don't know if there's going to be peace when my grandkids get here. I don't know. And I can worry about it, and I can, I, can, I can try to find some sort of rationalization about how do I naturally come to peace with this, or I can enjoy the journey. Or I can listen to, like, what Matthew 634 says, it says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It says, therefore, meaning this, in the previous verses, it says, hey, I'm in control. This is Jesus talking. I'm in control. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about the food. I dress the birds and I give the birds food. How much more do I love you and I will bless you and I will give you everything you need? Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me today. 
And that may be the single greatest hurdle that we have to get over as a people. That trusting that there is a king who tells us not to worry about the future. Why? I don't know if you know this. God is outside of time, so God is already in the future. He is already there. He is already with my grandkids years from now if, that, if God does not return before then. Which is bigger than my mind can wrap around that God is currently in the Old Testament with Moses as he is currently with us today, as he is currently with six generations of my family line from now. And there is not an inconsistency in either of these timelines. He is good then, he is good now. He is faithful then and he is faithful now. He's a promise keeper then, he's a promise keeper now, which means tomorrow he'll be a promise keeper, which means six generations from now he'll be a promise keeper, which brings me joy so that way I don't have to worry about what my kid will be like when he's 30. I need to be faithful and a good steward and speak highly of him today. Speak highly of the next generation. Lead them faithfully. And when you come to hurdles in the road as a family, bring them in on the conversation of we're doing this and we're living like this and we're thinking like this and we're believing like this. Why, mom and dad? Because we have a God who is bigger than us, who is in control and sustains all things, and we believe and trust him. Wow. God's really that big? You're not, you're not worried? Not at all, son. We trust God. Okay. And then watch. And watch as the picture you painted for them because the picture they continue to paint for their families of generations after generation of following Jesus, of their journey following Jesus, because your journey of following Jesus. God knows the end of the story. In fact, he's already there. And if he's telling me to enjoy the journey, I will do so. Will you? If you're walking in obedience, becoming more like Jesus, and pouring into the next generation, you're being obedient. And our job is obedience. And God's job is the outcome. There's a promise I want us to cling to this morning. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to go into a moment of reflection and worship and prayer. Isaiah 43, 19. Israel is in a state of the unknown. They don't know what the next step is. They don't know what to do. And they're looking to God, and this is what God says to the nation of Israel. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making ways in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. In the middle of the unknown, trust the waymaker. In the middle of the wilderness, trust the path paver. In the middle of the land where it seems like nothing is drinkable or eatable, trust the God who gives a new spring that quenches our thirst. He is doing a new thing, and he wants you to enjoy the journey. And if you're not focused on finding joy in the journey, you may just miss it. Find joy in the journey. Don't become obsessed with the outcome. What has robbed you of joy today? That won't even be solved today. Find joy in the journey. Give it to him. Get outside of yourself and trust a God who is bigger, better, wiser than you.
Tell me, Father, we're thankful for you and we're thankful for this time together. I pray in this time of worship that, God, you would be with us, that, God, music is great because it helps us put words and thoughts and prayers to emotions that we didn't know how to articulate. And I pray during this time that this would be a time of declaration, this would be a time of, um, God, reflection, that this would be a time of confession. This would be a moment that starts a movement in our lives of for the rest of our journeys, we will pursue Jesus, we will pursue joy, and we won't be obsessed with the outcome. We're going to enjoy the journey. God, we love you, we praise you, we're thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing together?